Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Nitai Daitel, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am pleased to introduce our guest for today's interview, exploring how shared ecological and technological challenges are forcing the world to re-envision China's rise in the world's future. Scott Moore is a political scientist, university administrator, and former policymaker whose career focuses on China, sustainability, and emerging technology. He is director of China programs and strategic initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the new book, China's Next Act, how sustainability and technology are reshaping China's rise and the world's future. Moderating the interview will be Angel Xu, Assistant Professor in the Public Policy Department and Energy, Environment, and Ecology Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research explores the intersection of science and policy in the use of data-driven approaches to environmental sustainability, particularly in climate and energy, urbanization, and air quality. Well, Scott and Angel are fellows in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Angel, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Nitai, and thanks so much, Scott, for joining me in this conversation today. I have your book. I was really enjoying reading through it, and I was impressed by how much ground you cover. And so you're talking about China's political and economic history, where it stands today, and how it influences China's global positioning on really um, key issues, including environment and sustainability. You have a chapter in there about the pandemic and also emerging technologies such as digital surveillance, which we know have been a little thorny in China's rise. So I was wondering if you could first talk about your motivations for writing the book and why now? Thanks so much. There is kind of a personal answer to your question and, and more of, a, of an academic one. So let me just quickly uh, try to cover uh, both, though they are related. Uh, the personal reason is that soon after I, I finished graduate school, I had the opportunity to spend a year at the U.S. Department of State uh, and I actually opened the kind of preface talking about this, uh, this experience, showing up and pretty, pretty much right out of uh, graduate school, uh, where, as you know, and many of those uh, listening will know, uh, is intensely specialized. And then being handed this portfolio called ESTH, which stands for Environment, Science, Technology, and Health on uh, what's referred to as the China desk at the State Department. So for somebody coming out of graduate school and you know having just sort of written a, a dissertation and things like that, the idea of, of expecting one person to cover so many very different, extremely technical issue areas uh, sounded somewhere between laughable and uh, <laughs> downright dangerous. And, and that, that remains true. But nonetheless, uh, over the course of my time there at the State Department, I did come to appreciate uh, this kind of set of issues uh, and some of the connections between them, at least when it comes to China. Uh, and at the time, uh, this was at the, uh, the kind of latter years of the, uh, the Obama administration, um, and cooperation, or at least dialogue with China um, on those issues, um, and in particular on climate change. I was there the, the year leading up to the Paris Agreement, uh, essentially, and cooperation on uh, what was then trying to uh, combat a, uh, an Ebola, a very serious Ebola uh, outbreak. That was really seen, those issue areas were really seen as uh, not just uh, the most promising areas of uh, engagement and diplomacy with China, 
but potentially as ways to um, integrate China into the, uh, the global community and international system more broadly. So those issue areas kind of came to be seen uh, as having uh, a lot of strategic importance, um, even relative to the more traditional uh, issues like trade or like uh, kind of geopolitics um, that had traditionally been the focus of diplomacy with China. And so it was that kind of uh, environment, I guess, that uh, that I uh, uh, I was exposed to. Obviously, the better part of a decade later, we're in a very different place uh, when it comes to China. And uh, I think, very frankly, the vision that uh, I think many uh, people had, at least uh, in the administration at that time, for uh, there being some potential for uh, particularly U.S.-China cooperation on areas like climate change and public health has, has failed, um, at least for now. Um, both to address those shared global challenges and to form the bedrock um, of a more constructive relationship between the two countries. Um, and so I really wanted to, to understand why that is. Um, spent a lot of, you know, a lot of brain space, frankly, and over the last year trying to, to think about why uh, exactly that, that dream uh, failed, at, at least uh, up till now. Um, and the more kind of uh, uh, conceptual uh, uh, answer to the question, which is related is that I think um, uh, for the most part, the discussion about uh, US-China relations and China policy tends to think about these big global challenges uh, and China's role in them as being somewhat divorced from uh, issues of competition, the deep fissures in the relationship over areas like human rights or Taiwan, um, when in fact, I think they're increasingly uh, and somewhat unfortunately, uh, very closely related. And so I wanted to develop some connective tissue be between these ideas of competition or rivalry uh, between the US and China uh, and trying to square that with the reality that so much of our uh, life and future are shaped by these shared global challenges in which China has an indispensable role to play. Yeah, and I wanna pick up on that particular point because I think you're right in that we think about US and China being these two global powers and on issues like pandemics and public health and climate change there, I think con conceptually and theoretically, particularly in the political science and global governance literature has talked about the need for collective action and for cooperation. And that's where a lot of the international policy responses has stemmed from like the Kyoto Protocol and other global agreements. But yeah, I think this, this, this question about whether or not competition is actually the more appropriate framing in this relationship is a really great um, question and point that you bring up very early in the book. So I was wondering um, if you could unpack this for us, because I think for many of us, it sounds really counterintuitive and it requires us to reshape our thinking about how we engage with China in a more competitive sense rather than cooperative. And so can you just unpack that a little bit more for us? Like, what do you mean by we should be competing or potentially competing more with China on these issues instead of trying to cooperate? Well, uh, it's a it's certainly the the key question, um, and I'd start by uh, saying, in fact, I, I do kind of try to get to this fairly early on in the book, um, is that at least when it comes to China, we talk so uh, uh, much about uh, cooperation, competition. Sometimes you hear other C words, uh, uh, coopetition, um, <laughs> things like that, uh, without really defining them or without really like having sort of a a, a next level down understanding of. Uh, of what those things actually mean. And so one of the things I try to do fairly early on is, is to just sort of uh, try to deal with that a little bit and, and better define what we mean and, and what we think about when we talk about um, cooperation versus uh, competition. And at least when it comes to China, I think the key thing that distinguishes cooperation is there's sort of a, 
um, uh, a benefit that, that uh, uh, stems from interaction or exchange or dialogue that's just sort of good for its own sake. Um, this is something that's good to do independent of you know, whatever kind of material gain uh, might, might result from it. Um, and that there's every expectation that both sides can gain um, more or less equitably. Um, what's different, I think, about competition um, is thinking that, well, we still need to have dialogue. We still need to trade. We still need to do all the things that sort of um, you know, bind in one way or another um, the US to China and other countries. But our aim is fundamentally to make sure um, that our side gains more than the other side. Um, and that expectation of there being some, you know, this is just good to do and, and positive for, uh, 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 for its own sake, uh, isn't really there. Um, and I think when you kind of map that to um, these, uh, these issues like, uh, like climate change, what that means is there's still a recognition that there has to be some level of communication, cooperation, collaboration, even collective action. Um, but it's not necessarily um, in the spirit of, you know, something that produces gains for, for both sides equitably. Um, and I think that's kind of a key uh, a differentiator. When it comes to um, uh, you know, the, the, the focus particularly that, that you pointed out um, in political science and international relations about the need for collective action um, to address global challenges like climate change, that's still, uh, uh, I think, very much true. I mean, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't contest that. Um, mm -hmm. What I do think is helpful to kind of distinguish between uh, is just this idea of why and how um, you have interaction. Um, and the sort of expectations that both sides um, bring to that. And in particular, this idea that you can um, achieve uh, kind of gains for, um, uh, for one side over another um, uh, is, is really important. Um, and it's sort of a key realization um, against this backdrop of, you know, frankly, continually rising tension and rivalry that I think does make it somewhat um, impractical, uh, unfortunately, to expect um, there to be a sort of um, uh, kumbaya, uh, you know, type approach to cooperation, whether it's on climate or other issues. Yeah, and let's dive a little bit deeper into, in, in particular, the climate and clean energy relationship between U.S. and China. Can you talk about how these dynamics, the tension between cooperation and competition, but in particular competition has played out in the energy sector and also climate policies in China. And I mean, if you're if you're able to say, or you're willing to say, who do you think has been the winner in, in, in these issues? Um, so I think up till now, uh, it has been the United States. And, and I think, you know, one of the ironies, I think actually behind um, the, the state that we find ourselves in with, with US-China relations is I actually do think in most material uh, areas, uh, the United States has gained uh, certainly more than China has and certainly more than it's lost from uh, all kinds of, uh, uh, of interaction and trade and, and investment with China. Um, but that being said, you know, there have been significant uh, negative uh, uh, impacts as well. And that's what we're seeing, you know, the attention, um, the attention paid to. Um, another way I think of answering your question is to kind of start with the idea of, well, what, um, and getting back to the sort of definitional um, issues, what exactly is it that we need um, cooperation on, on climate change mm -hmm. or other kind of global public goods, uh, shared global challenges for? Um, and I think there are uh, two key things. One is you definitely need uh, some type of, of binding international agreement 
Um, that's just the nature of the international system that we live in, that at some point you will need some type of binding international agreement that enforces significant cuts on greenhouse gas emissions and punishes you know, any country that, that, would, um, uh, that would break that uh, agreement. So that type of thing is obviously something that to some degree you have to get the, you know, the United States government, uh, the Chinese government, other major emitter governments on the same page for. The other thing um, I think that you uh, would want cooperation for or need it um, for is to produce uh, the key clean technologies that we need for decarbonization at the lowest possible cost. Um, and this is something that you know, some of our pit colleagues have done um, a lot of thinking and, and work on. Um, and to the extent that you can utilize China's unparalleled manufacturing economies of scale to produce that, um, ideally using you know, foreign intellectual property uh, or you know, producing some, some returns for foreign firms as well, um, that is an attractive form of economic and technological cooperation when it comes to China. Um, unfortunately, um, there are uh, lots of political and economic barriers uh, to both those types of uh, cooperation. And I think that's where uh, the idea of what gains can you produce through competition uh, comes in. Um, and you know, you, you've thought a lot about this and written about it as well, uh, Anjal, but uh, in the book, uh, the main thing that I talk about is uh, the idea that uh, this kind of framing of competition might uh, provide some impetus for uh, governments on both sides to invest more in basic research and development for advanced versions of clean technology to support decarbonization. Um, and I would add just that we have seen some good examples of this, um, like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which was justified in part um, by President Biden as helping the United States to compete more effectively with China. Yeah, and it definitely seems like this competition driver has become a lot stronger in recent years, as you said, with the Inflation Reduction Act. And certainly if we trace back and as you do in the book to the emergence of China's clean energy technology, I mean, they were thinking about it not from a climate and energy perspective, but from an economic competitiveness issue. They said, if we invest now, if we produce and invest huge subsidies into these programs of development of wind and solar PV, that's going to give us that type of competitive advantage. And so I guess I'm wondering, um, and you and you talked about these two possibilities for cooperation. I think on the first one, the legally binding international treaty for at least climate change and energy, that's just not that's just not happening. There was no traction. I think you and I were both at the 2009 Copenhagen negotiations where we saw how that um, just miserably failed. And that just clearly has not been um, on the table because of the competitive dynamics between the US and China. And that's why we have Paris, which is this bottom up and allows for countries to decide what they can contribute to the issue. So I, I guess I'm wondering then, is there any room for, for competition? It just seems like, and you and talk about the tensions between US and China that really, I think, um, introduce a lot of noise into our ability to actually have conversations with Chinese counterparts on the climate issue. And so from your perspective and, and as a former policymaker, do you think that there is any room now and what might be those points where we can try to cooperate with China on climate change and energy? Well, you know, another uh, kind of uh, key thing floating in the background here um, and that uh, I, I was sort of in my mind when I was, uh, you know, when I was writing the book um, is that the U.S. approach uh, really has been um, to try to uh, kind of separate uh, these global uh, challenge issues and, and climate is certainly the best example from the more, from an American point of view, at least more problematic um, issues in the relationship 
Um, that seemed to work for a while, uh, but recently, as, as many will, will know, um, we had a pretty definitive uh, end to that in uh, Beijing's decision to suspend uh, cooperation or dialogue more specifically with the United States on climate change as one of a, a several retaliatory measures uh, uh, following uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, Taiwan. Um, so that's the kind of, I mean, in the, in the short term, at least, um, we've seen a total um, end uh, to dialogue or, or cooperation. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that what that signals, and one of the big questions is how long, of course, that will last, whether there will be, um, you know, resumption of that. Um, certainly, we have signals that there's, you know, informal dialogue, which is good news. Um, but that, I think, is a pretty strong signal that um, there uh, is, unfortunately, a, a connection between uh, the rivalry and, and competition dynamics in the broader relationship and these sort of um, uh, shared global challenge issues uh, like climate change. So does that leave, uh, what space, you know, does that, uh, does that leave? Um, a, a shrinking one, uh, but I think uh, one nonetheless. Um, and another kind of point I try to draw out uh, in the book um, is that uh, China is uh, massively exposed to uh, ecological and climate risks, uh, much more so, I think, than is commonly appreciated, although that's becoming more evident uh, all the time. Uh, this past summer's heat wave uh, is the most recent and best example of that. It's uh, on many measures the most severe heat wave on record anywhere in the world uh, that uh, a large part of central China uh, suffered. Um, through, and that was accompanied by a punishing drought, uh, continues to really uh, uh, hammer China's uh, uh, industrial production, um, for example. There, this is an issue that is not going away for China's policymakers uh, as much as their American counterparts, and there is a strong uh, interest in taking action uh, on climate change that is more ambitious than what's been done so far, um, just as there is their, their American counterparts. I think the final kind of point though that your question raises is what's the value of continued diplomacy yeah. um, uh, uh, on both sides. And the US and China, um, what's different particularly on the US side since passage of the Inflation Reduction Act is that both sides have uh, enacted you know, relatively ambitious uh, 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 domestic commitments uh, on climate change, uh, more ambitious and sort of formulaic on the Chinese side than on the American. But nonetheless, both sides have sort of set um, pretty ambitious goals, and the focus is now on achieving them um, primarily through national action. And so I do think there's sort of less stress, um, so to speak, placed on that high-level diplomatic uh, uh, collaboration. So I think in the short term, there probably isn't a lot we can expect, um, both because of the, um, the uh, uh, tensions in the broader relationship, but also in part because the focus is shifting as it should uh, to, to national action. Um, though I do hope there will be some scope. I think we have to be very uh, um, you know, uh, modest in, in, in expectations, but I hope there's some scope uh, to do something on adaptation. I think that's, that's the clear gap um, that, that exists and that it's crying out for some, some attention. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. I mean, um, just speaking to cooperation, I think we were all quite surprised, or at least I was quite surprised 
even at the Glasgow negotiations that happened in 2021, that U.S. and China were able to come together on this global methane partnership. But I think, yeah, given this new context, that that's a major question, whether or not it still makes sense to cooperate on these issues um, or whether or not, as you said, more of the focus will just devolve to more domestic actions, which also could be incredibly impactful. And um, yeah, I like your point about adaptation because, uh, yeah, I mean, China was not alone in suffering triple digit heat waves. And in the U.S., I mean, California, San Francisco has been experiencing triple digit uh, temperatures. And so I think there's a lot that we could work together on. So I think that's a that's a really fair point. Um, so I, I want to pivot a little bit um, back to this this other question about China's innovation system, which you talk about and knowledge production. And one area we have seen China be incredibly successful in this innovation space has been on clean energy technologies, including solar photovoltaic, solar water heaters. You talk about them being an unsexy technology. And actually, I, I actually think it's actually incredibly sexy if you think about how uh, incredibly they've been able to dominate the market and you drive around the Chinese countryside and all the rooftops are covered with solar water heaters, which is huge, uh, but also electric vehicles, which has also been, I think, a big emerging sector for the U.S. to compete in. So I was um, wondering if you could talk about some of the key elements of China's approach and whether or not you think their model of innovation is actually replicable outside of China or is it unique to China? And so I'm asking this because there's been so much conversation since Biden became president about whether or not the US can or should compete with China in this space. Because as you said, it's not necessarily um, easy to just overtake China when they have established manufacturing uh, supply chains. Yeah, I think you know. I think the short answer is is no, um, uh, and I think there are several, but several important longer uh, things to say. One of which is that uh, there are aspects of China's um, approach to clean technology development uh, that have planted the seeds for I think some of the more unfortunate or problematic uh, uh, tensions that that exist in this space, and reasons why um, it's not very realistic, unfortunately, to expect a lot from. Uh, U.S. China or even U.S. Uh, or uh, even Europe, uh, Sino-European uh, cooperation, and it it is uh, because of some uh, problematic uh, uh, kind of policy support measures that uh, that uh, uh, Beijing employed to support the growth of the uh, solar and uh, and wind industry. Some examples of forced technology transfer and IP violations, um, things like that, that are problematic practices and that contributed. Um, to uh, a lot of the uh, the tensions, I mean, indeed, basically was the original justification for uh, for the the trade war uh, initiated by uh, the Trump administration uh, against China. So there's a a lot of uh, aspects of China's uh, approach that um, I think uh, had some really negative effects. Whatever, uh, apart from their um, positive effects on the uh, the the growth in renewable energy capacity. Um, installed uh, worldwide. And I think kind of comes back to this um, fundamental question of what can we ask of cooperation um, between countries, especially on clean technology and clean energy development versus competition. Um, my argument is that I think we're at the stage where um, we have a lot of the technological pieces of the puzzle to decarbonization in place. And solar PV, whether it's made in China or elsewhere, is a big part of that. Um, but it's not all of it. Uh, we still have a lot of, uh, of tech that has to be um, developed, that certainly that has to be deployed, um, and it's going to require some significant additional uh, uh, investment, including from governments. 
And that's really where I see the role of competition coming into play to the extent that you can create a virtuous uh, kind of cycle where uh, Beijing, Washington, uh, you know, Brussels, uh, Berlin are all uh, putting money uh, into this sector and into trying to solve the remaining uh, technological uh, uh, questions around, uh, around decarbonization, um, that's probably going to give us the best chance um, mm -hmm. of, uh, of solving, uh, solving all, of those, uh, uh, all of those problems. But I think to your point um, and, and the premise of your original question, uh, the policy measures and the approach that, that Beijing took uh, to developing its renewables industry uh, are not necessarily replicable or are they necessarily desirable um, to, to see applied elsewhere. Um, and I think ideally we would want to see uh, the, the, certainly the next generation of technology be developed, um, be so uh, cheap, <laughs> you know, and its advantages so clear um, that you really wouldn't need uh, much uh, in the way of policy support. Yeah, and certainly I think we have the world has a lot to thank China for in driving down those costs of these key technologies that are ultimately going to help us get to these decarbonization goals. Um, so I have one last question for you. Um, in the conclusion of your book, you talk about two main lessons for how to bolster cooperation with China in areas of common concern. We've talked about the first one, which is the ring fencing approach. And that certainly has, we tried that from the US perspective. I remember when, when Secretary Kerry, or former Secretary Kerry was appointed as a special envoy. I mean, he specifically said, we're gonna try to work with China in isolation on the climate issue and, and try to drown out the other geopolitical noise. And clearly, as, as you mentioned, that hasn't necessarily been really effective. But the second point that you make is um, allowing non-state actors, businesses, universities, and subnational actors to lead the way in terms of cooperation. And so obviously I'm biased towards this particular approach because I researched it as well, but I was hoping that you could expand on the second point and provide some concrete recommendations for those who are out there hoping to still collaborate with Chinese counterparts in an increasingly tense time in the relationship where we've seen China close off. And for researchers like myself, I'm used to going to China multiple times a year and attending conferences where there are Chinese counterparts. And we basically have not had any of that for the last three years. So if you could speak to how you see this subnational and non-state actor cooperation happening, and then any advice or recommendations for us who are trying to continue those engagements or re-engage with Chinese counterparts. Um, absolutely. Uh, and in the book, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, about climate change uh, specifically um, for good reason. It's, it's definitely the crux of the whole, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, picture when it comes to trying to situate China in terms of uh, uh, a key solution or a key actor in solving these shared global challenges. But I do try to touch on some others in the book, um, if, if for no other reason than to sort of um, contextualize uh, climate a little bit. And so I do talk a little bit about um, what I see is the need for uh, developing rules and norms around emerging technologies like um, AI, artificial intelligence, or the one that I actually focus most intently in the, uh, on the book in is um, uh, advanced forms of biotechnology, gene editing, synthetic biology. Um, and it's actually, I think, in that kind of emerging technology space where the role of these subnational and non-state actors is kind of most um, uh, evident and important. Um, if uh, for no other reason than that uh, national governments can't keep up uh, with the sheer pace of technological progress. And that means that as a practical matter, a lot of the work uh, of trying to ensure responsible use and development of these technologies falls to 
universities, industry associations, individual companies, even individual researchers and labs in a lot of cases. Um, so I think that it's particularly important in that space. That being said, there's definitely a huge role um, for uh, uh, na uh, subnational non-state actors in the, the climate uh, uh, policy area as well. I think the thing that I would say, especially in that arena though, and I do try to sort of harp on this a little bit in the book, um, is that uh, the subnational and non-state sector is not a substitute for yeah. uh, national action or for you know international agreements, um, things like that. So in many ways, it's sort of trying to pave the way um, for that ultimate goal. But um, I think there is a lot of um, a lot of potential for uh, subnational cooperation um, in areas like uh, uh, building codes, uh, uh, urban planning, things that have significant uh, impact on uh, on emissions, in some cases, electricity uh, grid uh, reform and policy. Um, I think in terms of concrete recommendations, something that I say in the book that uh, national governments need to get better at, and here my audience is more, you know, thinking more about um, uh, 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 democracies than, uh, that, than China, per se, uh, but they need to get much better at uh, uh, engaging and coordinating with subnational actors. You know, when I was at the State Department, we hosted the first ever uh, US-China subnational summit on uh, climate change, essentially. Um, and it just involved a lot of things that we had never done before as the State Department, trying to work with um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, local uh, leaders. I remember it was like the, the mayor of Wichita, uh, Kansas. You know, I, I think that's probably the first time the city of Wichita and the US Department of State have had a, you know, mm -hmm. interaction. Um, and so it's just kind of, getting that experience, figuring out what those channels look like, um, and just sort of how to reconcile the, the high diplomacy and the presidential summits that the State Department is used to organizing um, and trying to translate it more as to, you know, how can uh, local government officials from the US, China, other countries get in a room and have a productive discussion about uh, joint actions to combat climate change. There are a lot of operational and practical uh, questions to sort through there, and uh, governments need to get much better uh, at doing that and investing a lot more resources in um, engaging better with subnational players. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. And we saw during the Trump administration how those subnational interactions were really a way to keep that relationship between the U.S. and China on climate alive. And you had former California Governor Jerry Brown, who actually went to China and visited with President Xi Jinping to talk about cooperation on climate change. And so that was really critical. Um, well, thank you so much, Scott, for this really great conversation on your book. Again, I'm going to give you a, a plug, China's Next Act by Scott Moore. It's a really um, great read. I loved the perspective that you provided um, from your own personal experiences. I thought that added a lot of rich context and, and color to it. And, and really, um, thanks so much for this great conversation. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts and insights with us and our audience today. I'd also like to thank the National Committee staff behind the scenes who have made today's interview possible. Uh, we hope that those who've tuned in all the way to the end now found the interview both interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programs. Thank you all again and have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.